Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Hurricane intensity forecasts have been a major focus within the meteorological community for decades. Improvements in track forecasts have outpaced those in intensity, largely because our ability to sample these tropical monsters can be a difficult task. Satellites high above the ocean surface provide vital information for models, but with the deployment of new underwater instruments, data is now being collected below the ocean surface, and it may help improve satellite observations and those much sought-after intensity forecasts. Today, we welcome Dr. Katherine Edwards, whose fleet of underwater gliders are already making a splash. Dr. Edwards, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. This is really awesome because it's actually one of my colleagues at the University of Georgia. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Marine Sciences at the Skidaway Island Institute for Oceanography. Um, We're going to get into some of your other credentials and background later, but could you kind of, I like to always get my guests to walk us through your career and how you came to be an oceanographer. What what was your spark? I came to oceanography completely by accident. Um, I think that's that's something that happens to a lot of us in our fields. Um, I started off as a physics major, and each summer after freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years, found a research experience to do. And my first RU experience after my freshman year brought me back and looking for a campus job in uh, in atmospheric science. Actually. Um, And I ended up in the Department of Marine Sciences at the University of North Carolina, where I was an undergraduate physics major. And I started working on science projects. And then they said, hey, little girl, would you like to take a class in fluid mechanics? And I said, oh, that sounds great. Oh, just that easy stuff, fluid mechanics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then then next they were like, oh, what about geophysical fluid dynamics? And I said, oh, great. Um, And here I am. They tricked me. (laughs) Now. You know, and then that's a really good uh, sort of segue into sort of the background that it takes to be a marine scientist or an oceanographer in the same way that uh, much of the atmospheric uh, sciences, meteorology is very much uh, fluid based as well. I want to go even further back, though. When you were a kid, were you that kid that was interested in the weather or playing around in streams or or did science kind of come late for you? Science came a little bit later to me. Um, when uh, when I was in high school, I definitely enjoyed math a great deal and um, then got into physics uh, and realized, uh, this is really fun. This is very cool. I think my brain works like this. Right. Um, in terms of weather, I started getting interested in weather a little bit more in college uh, when I started skydiving. Oh, wow. Um, and so we spent a lot of time thinking about the winds aloft sure. and how the winds change at different altitudes. And for our concern, it was how it might push us horizontally um, and how to account for the, the the winds in terms of of steering our parachutes back towards the drop zone so you wouldn't land in a field of soybeans. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Oh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of amateur meteorologists uh, on on that plane. Well, my, my daughter, who's 15, 
that's one of her biggest desires is to skydive. So I need to hook you up because this meteorologist has no plans to do it. It's amazing. Yeah. I think everybody should do you it should at least do it once. once. I, I'm, I'm going to pass, but I'm going to let my daughter experience it for me. <laughs> but I, I certainly noted this a thrill. Now, we're talking with Dr. Catherine Edwards from the University of Georgia. She's at Skidaway Island Institute of Oceanography and is a faculty member in the Department of Marine Sciences. She's also an adjunct assistant professor at Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, in the Department of Earth and Atmosphere. Sciences. She has a PhD in physical oceanography from the University of North Carolina and a bachelor's degree in physics with high honors uh, from UNC as well. Tell us about your role as a faculty member at UGA and at Skidaway. Great. So I am at Skidaway Institute of Oceanography, which is in Savannah, Georgia, on the coast. Um, and I guess about six years ago, Skidaway Institute of Oceanography merged with the University of Georgia. Um, and so I was able to join the Department of Marine Sciences. Um, and uh, so we have uh, our, our, our faculty are split among two campuses um, on Athens and then at Skidaway. And then several of us um, uh, have some work going on at Sapelo Island, where the UGA Marine Institute is. That is correct. And just a little background, the Skidaway uh, Institute for Oceanography was created in 1969 by the Georgia General Assembly to conduct research in all fields of oceanography. It was transferred to the university system in 1971, and in 2013, as you heard, it was merged with the University of Georgia. So you said how many faculty are there at uh, at Skidaway all total? Currently, um, Currently, I think we are we are eight faculty. Um, uh, we just had, uh, we've got some two positions opening, so we hope to bring that up to 10 or just over um, in the next year or now, so. Are, are all these faculty from the University of Georgia or do you have other people from other institutions in the state? Or? Um, we are all with the University of Georgia um, and right now we are all through the Department of Marine Sciences. Yeah. We collaborate heavily with College of Engineering um, and since Skidaway was an independent university within the USG for almost 50 50 years before the merge, um, most of us have very strong collaborations with other universities. Uh, for example, I co-advise students at Georgia Tech in the electrical and computer engineering uh, school. And then um, several of us on campus are quite active with Savannah State University advising students there. Yeah, I know they have a really good marine sciences activity there as well. Absolutely. Okay, it's time to geek out. We, we all know who our guest is. This is Weather Geeks. We want to geek out now on some of the really cool things you you're doing. But before we get into the sort of robotic gliders that are studying ocean temperatures and helping hurricane forecasts, can you talk about, I mean, this is just sort of geek 101 here. Can you describe for our listeners the stratification of the ocean? Okay, so you know the stratification of the ocean is is similar to stratification that occurs in the atmosphere, and you know in the ocean uh, our variables are temperature, and just like in the atmosphere, but instead of humidity we have salinity. So the more salt that's in the water, the heavier it is, and the less salt that is in the water, the lighter it is. Um, so we have buoyancy forces from rivers. Um, we have uh, things that make the water 
water more dense, like evaporation. Um, Why, wait, now let's stop right there before you move forward. Why does evaporation make water more dense? Is it because you're leaving water and leave, leaving more salt there? You can have salt brining that goes that goes down. Um, also, you can near the surface convection works in an opposite direction in the ocean uh, than it does in the atmosphere. When heat is removed from the surface ocean, um, that cooling is is brings cooler water down and it causes mixing near surface. You see it often in the coastal ocean, uh, especially in the summer when the atmosphere is uh, is cooler than the surface ocean is. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because the the atmosphere, which is where many weather geeks think about uh, the the same physics and dynamics are are behaving in the atmosphere as they are in the ocean. And so absolutely. Yeah. So we we take a lot of the same classes and learn about maybe your Stokes equations and all those interesting things along the way. A fluid is a fluid. A fluid is a fluid. Is a fluid. And so that's why when when I have students walk into my office at, at the University of Georgia and say I want to major in atmospheric sciences, the first question I say, well, how's your math and physics? Because there are going to be a lot of courses in that before we ever get to the meteorology courses. And so I think uh, same thing for marine science. Just a quick something I've always been curious about before we really dive into the tropical cyclones and hurricanes. Is there a difference terminolog- terminologically between marine sciences and oceanography? I think the terms are often used interchangeably. You could get into it um, and and think a little bit more. I think the marine sciences are perhaps a little broader um, and include study of coastal wetlands and uh, barrier islands and include um, a little bit more about the geology of landforms um, on the marine uh, on the marine uh, in the marine environment. Um, you know. Many oceanography or marine sciences programs are broken down into subdisciplines of physics, chemistry, biology, and geology. Um, and so most of us come to that from with a strong background in at least one of those disciplines. Yeah. But, you know, as a field, none of us studies exactly one discipline. You know, I'm a physical oceanographer, but, you know, a lot of the science I do is heavily involved with biology and chemistry or geology or meteorology or engineering. Um, And even if I'm just studying a purely physical problem, you know, the motivation comes from, for example, what drives productivity on the outer shelf of North Carolina uh, or Georgia, um, or what is the flow of carbon through a tidal salt marsh uh, near Savannah, Georgia. These are all motivated by larger and complex interdisciplinary questions. Yeah, and, and, and meteorology is the same. I'm a physical meteorologist. I have a background in physical meteorology, but there's dynamic meteorology, synoptic meteorology, climatology, and all kinds of other subdisciplines as well, which is a broader catch-all term that we use, atmospheric sciences, which captures meteorology, climatology, so very similar. Let's now talk hurricanes, because you've been doing some really interesting work using these underwater robotic glider things. Um, And I want to talk a lot about those over the next uh, several minutes here. But for our listeners, and I'll I'll probably weigh in on this as well, how do tropical cyclones um, feed off of warm water? Why is warm water so important to them? Well, I come to I come to hurricanes and tropical cyclones, you know, through the ocean. Um, And so, you know, ocean and atmospheric interaction is really, really important for the life cycle of a hurricane. 
Um, and one of the ways uh, in which the ocean can affect tropical activity is uh, through heat transport, heat transport to the or availability to the atmosphere from the ocean. Um, knowing where those gradients of temperature are is important and where those heat sources are. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of work that that um, suggests that, you know, that 23, 26 degree isotherm is kind of that. And that's Celsius. Celsius is is sort of that magic number for um, for ocean heat that can really effectively, um, uh, I guess, grow the potential of of hurricanes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 well well known that hurricanes feed off of warm water. Uh, it's it's interesting because people will say the hurricane season starts. Uh, June 1st, at the peak of the season's around September 10th or so, I often say. And they'll ask me why. And I said, well, there's, you know, that's when the waters are really starting to get to their peak uh, intensity in terms of their temperature uh, because of the something in science called specific heat or heat capacity of water. It takes a lot longer for water to heat up than it does the land or sand. So that's why we see that peak. Now, you're using these robotic gliders. Just introduce them before the break. What are these robotic gliders and how are you motivated to start doing doing those, working with those? So gliders are autonomous underwater vehicles. Autonomous underwater vehicles, meaning that they're completely untethered. They fly on their own. They're capable of flying on their own for weeks or even so months. So you do refer to it as flying when they're in the water. Right. It's just like a glider flying in the atmosphere. Um, they use buoyancy and gravity to fly. So uh, by changing their buoyancy and center of gravity, gravity, they're able to move around in the ocean using lift to translate that that hor- that vertical force into horizontal motion. So we ballast them so that they're near neutral in the water, the the target water. Then uh, they take in a small volume of water. It's actually a barrier that moves the boundary between the wet and the dry sections of the instrument um, so that they become heavier than the water around it. Then an internal battery moves forward just about an inch or so. So then it's heavy and pointed down. So the wings on either side give it lift for stable flight down towards the seafloor. When an altimeter about 10 feet or so, three meters or so above the bottom, says when it's time to inflect and reverse the process. Um, The water gets pushed out of the wet section in the nose. The glider becomes lighter because its density has changed. And then the battery moves back so that now it's pitched up so it can use buoyancy as its driving force to move smoothly to the surface. So in this way, it's moved depending on water depth, you know, potentially a football field or more, just with those two small motions. So it's super energy efficient. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Catherine Edwards from the University of Georgia at the Skidaway Institute uh, of Oceanography, Skidaway Island Institute of Oceanography down in Savannah, Georgia. And she is talking about these fascinating underwater gliders that we think, uh, I know they think, but as a meteorologist, I also believe that can really... uh, be a game changer for hurricane forecasting. And the reason is, as we we talked about in the last segment, is that hurricanes, their primary fuel supply is warm water. And what's important and often is missed when we talk about hurricanes is warm, deep water. It's the depth of the water, ocean heat content. Talk about this concept of depth of the warm water, because often people just talk about the sea surface temperature. Absolutely. Well, sea surface temperature is what we can see very easily from satellites. Um, We have this amazing tool to understand heat in the ocean from the satellites. We can see global changes and we can can see them during the day or during night. We're getting better about seeing through clouds. You know, that's great. Um, You know, but... uh, temperature in the ocean and that heat potential is is a three-dimensional thing um, it had there are differences in um, in in the horizontal and in the vertical um, and those are important to the way that the ocean moves, um, just as temperature changes in the horizontal and the vertical are important to the way that the atmosphere moves. Um, they drive a lot of the physics uh, in the ocean, but then it's also um, it's also an ability to um, to transfer heat to the atmosphere. Uh, one of the things that has become clear is that if you have a large change in temperature from surface to bottom, then as an appro- as a storm approaches, you know that storm may mix that temperature stratification, that difference between the warm water near surface and near bottom. So, if your ocean model or if your if your 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 model for that heat transfer is based on just that surface temperature alone, then then you might overestimate the amount of heat that's available to come into the atmosphere. You know, as the hurricane bands come, it might mix that water, and so the resulting temperature at the surface is lower than it had been before that wind mixing. Right. Um, and so, you know, it actually works the other way around too. Um, you know, for example, with, um, uh, if you have a cap layer of salinity stratification, you know, from river input or, uh, you know, in the Caribbean, you even see um, some effects from the Amazon River kind of floating up through the Caribbean uh, uh, sea. But um, that can act as a barrier to mixing. So you might overestimate uh, the amount of heat that's able to to be transmitted to the atmosphere if you don't account for that low salinity layer at the top that's acting as sort of a, a barrier to mixing, to physical mixing, and then that heat's availability to the atmosphere. And, and this is getting at the challenge of the intensity forecast because it's the, the, the convection, that sort of heat transfer from ocean to the atmosphere and the condensations and condensation and latent heat release that's driving that con- convective uh, system, if you will, and lowering the pressure and leading to intensifying winds and a hurricane. That's all connected. So these these 
drones, not drones, I don't want to say drones, these gliders can provide information on the three-dimensionality of that temperature structure in the water and perhaps help with the models. I, I remember reading something with Hurricane Harvey. I think I even wrote about this recently in that apparently the as Harvey was moving towards land, uh, it was mixing water. It was about welling of cold water, but uh, but the water that was bringing up was still well above the threshold that hurricanes like, if you will. And so it really kind of drove home for me to, the the challenge, but the opportunity with these gliders. Now, what kind of instrumentation do you have? What what measurements are you taking with the gliders? So for this research, our you know we're primarily relying on what we call the CTD. It measures conductivity, temperature, and depth. Since um, we can form salinity estimates from con- conductivity and temperature. Uh, more saline water will conduct electricity better and in higher temperatures. Um, we can back out salinity from that. And then uh, we can also compute density as well. Um, uh, so that's really, as a physical oceanography, that's our bread and butter. That's what we that's what we love. And for this project, that's our primary uh, primary sensor. But gliders are amazingly flexible instruments. We are only really limited by space and power supply, um, and uh, to some degree, weight. How much we can counteract the weight that the sensors are add to the instrument package. Um, so um, my gliders typically are outfitted with dissolved oxygen sensors that measure how much oxygen is dissolved in the water. Um, we also carry fluorometers that um, are typically programmed with three channels, one to estimate the amount of chlorophyll or marine algae that's in the water, another at uh, aimed at uh Car- dissolved carbon, so colored dissolved organic matter uh, uh, that's that's available in very small quantities uh, in the ocean. Um, and then um, also backscatter, uh, optical backscatter, how much stuff, either bubbles or sand or, or other things that can scatter light in the water. So, so you actually have, and I'm, we're going to get a little geeky here because I'm actually teaching a satellite meteorology course at, at Georgia right now, and we're talking about remote sensing principles. So there are actually some remote sensing it sounds like. Is that right? I mean, you're using an optical instrument. Right. Yeah. And these provide valuable, uh, valuable subsurface measurements yeah. that complement the the surface satellite measurements that we're able to take, um, you know, to estimate how much chlorophyll fluorescence is at the sea surface. That's, that's, that's really, really interesting. And so you have these gliders, they have these really neat instruments that can help us with some of these measurements, not just for, now, in this discussion, we're focusing on hurricanes. Well, uh, hopefully later on in the podcast, we'll talk about some of the other sort of oceanographic and physical processes that these things can help with because it's not just a hurricane, but, you know, for the standpoint of this discussion, we're talking about hurricanes. Have you deployed these gliders in a real hurricane situation? We have, but before we go further, I want to emphasize that the coolest thing about these gliders that is the biggest ability to be able to help in hurricane forecasting is the fact that they come up to the surface every four to six hours Mm. and they talk to us and they say, hi, my name is Angus and I'm in the ocean and this is my latitude and longitude for my GPS. Um, And then it says, you know, do you want want to change my mission. Do you want me to report a subset of the data I've been collecting over the last four to six hours? Or do you want to adapt my mission in other ways? So we take that opportunity through automated scripts run on servers in our lab and some human supervision piloting of of the surfacing. Sure. 
to transfer a small subset of that data. Um, so that means that we're able to see what's going on in the ocean in near real time. We're able to see these three-dimensional temperature fields within a few hours of the data being collected. And part of part of um, our role in in these NOAA-funded efforts that um, that funds a good deal of my work, um, I'm part of a regional association called Secura, the Southeast Coastal Ocean Observing Regional Association, that is one of several regional organizations funded by the NOAA IU's office, the Integrated Ocean Observing Systems Office. Um, and the the role of these programs is to collect ocean observations and make them available to all of the other NOAA programs and to the general public, including our partners and stakeholders. You know, fisheries scientists are very interested in these subsurface temperature fields so they can get better prediction of where the fish are. Um, uh, fisheries scientists and managers, uh, for example, we work very closely with Grays Reef National Marine Sanctuary, a marine protected area off of Georgia's coast. Um, and they're very interested in the data that come out of these gliders. And then, you know, one of our other major stakeholders then is also modelers, ocean modelers who can take these profiles of temperature and salinity and assimilate them into their models in near real time. You know, the Navy is is one of the, the, the biggest users of these data um, for their global and regional ocean forecasts. Um, but, you know, ocean scientists all over the world are able to take advantage of these data. So we and other glider scientists contribute our data um, because of this funding through NOAA into national databases of glider profile data. Um, and then those are transmitted to the global, uh, del global telecommunications system so that it's available internationally for use in, in ocean or atmospheric models or, you know, for general use. Um, Sakura has its own data portal to try to highlight the importance of regional ocean observations to our regional partners and stakeholders. But, you know, part of the power of these gliders for ocean forecasting and for atmospheric forecasting is that these data are available in near real time. Uh, yeah, the real time aspect is critical. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and you're hearing a fascinating discussion from my colleague, Dr. Catherine Edwards, about these remote autonomous robotic gliders that can give us some really interesting near real-time information about the oceans uh, for all kinds of applications. Now, uh, for the standpoint of weather geeks, we're talking weather here. And you you mentioned that you have deployed these in a real hurricane situation, I believe, with Hurricane Florence off the Carolina coast in 2018. What was your experience like there? So last year was our first year participating in hurricane gliders. It's a national program that has been funded by NOAA um, to 
to be able to put these gliders into the paths of hurricanes and use them to understand that three-dimensional heat uh, uh, that that may fuel hurricanes. Um, so last year, uh, in our first year in the project, we deployed two hurricanes uh, right into the path of Hurricane Florence. Um, we deployed one off of Cape Hatteras in North Carolina um, out of Oregon Inlet, on, I guess it was September 7th, about a little less than a week before Florence made landfall in North Carolina. Um, and then on Monday, September 10th, we deployed the second one um, uh, right uh, off of South Carolina on what ended up being the, the southern side of the storm when it made landfall. So we were able to see the temperature evolution as the storm approached and contribute those data to these networks of subsurface temperature salinity data in real time. Wow. And were any of your data sets also used either in these deployments or others in any of the models? Absolutely. So one of the cool things in this project is we've been working with the Navy and other collaborators at Rutgers, um, at NOAA, uh, down at AOML, um, and other academic partners uh, to be able to assess the impact of the glider data onto the ocean models forecast. So the Navy runs models in different configurations, including one that had, so we were able to, to make some comparisons to directly, uh, to directly assess the impact of the glider data by using an ocean model that had assimilated only satellite satellite data, um, and then use ocean models that had assimilated profiling data, including these gliders. And so we can compare the temperature and salinity fields from those models through the glider's whole track or on a profile by profile level. Okay, and let me just explain, because some of the listeners here, we're, we're having a very nice geek out here, as we love to do on the podcast. You, you heard her mention profiles. Um, we, we take profiles vertically in the atmosphere or the ocean. I mean, we take profiles of the atmosphere using weather balloons. We send them up, uh, and they sample the atmosphere in terms of temperature and wind and humidity, and uh, we call those atmospheric soundings or profiles. And uh, you're talking about these profiles in the ocean, so you're just getting these sort of vertical sort of samples of, of the of the ocean. You also heard uh, Dr. Edwards mention assimilation. Again, that's something we do in weather modeling and, and other uh, uh, physical modeling where the models are run. They try to predict the future state of this fluid, but we can assimilate or insert new data sets into the models uh, in space and time to improve the sort of characterization of the, 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 the field or structure of the atmosphere, the ocean that the model is trying to simulate. So one of the very reasons uh, our weather model technology has improved so well, the European model, GFS models, because it's assimilating so much satellite data in. But now you're talking about this notion of assimilating these data sets into the, the ocean models as well. Yes, these vertical profiles yeah, so and that they can be essential in not only getting the ocean physics right, but the three-dimensional temperature signal as well. What are the challenges in operating these robotic uh, uh, gliders. I mean, I'm sure that it's not all peaches and cream. <laughs> no, they, they, they can, because they call in regularly, it's an opportunity to adapt their, their, their motion or to look at the data and pilot them towards the areas where they might have the biggest impact. For example, areas with large thermal gradients um, or right on the edge of our, our shelf where we've got the Gulf Stream as a, as a crazy boundary condition that is really important for ocean models to get right. Um, so, you know, 
that's a fabulous thing, an opportunity to interact with our gliders while they're deployed for weeks or even months at a time. But it also means that we interact with our gliders every four to six hours for weeks or months at a time. Wow. Um, so we have a cooperative uh, network of pilots in the southeast through our regional consortium, um, usually a team of, of between four and ten pilots. Um, and then uh, and, and so we, we swap off. We take shifts. Um, wow. Um, and so there's one day that it's your job to anytime the glider comes up, you have to talk to it. Um, and and then the next day, it's somebody else's job. You, you're able to switch off. Uh, we do that to prevent crosstalk. One person talks to a glider at any time. So and that's fascinating, but also a bit tedious. And that's that's the world of scientific research. So shout out to all those people involved in the process, process the graduate students and the staff and the volunteers, because I know it takes a lot of effort. Can you operate? I, mean, I know you mentioned that you operated prior to Florence. Can you actually operate during the tropical cyclone itself? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in the glider's tail, they have a bladder. Um, so it moves with this buoyancy and center and center of gravity. But when it comes up to transmit data, it has a satellite phone built into the tail. So when it comes up to surface, it inflates a small bladder in the tail so that the satellite phone can get a good signal. Um, and this additional buoyancy makes it a lot better to for the instrument to get sky view and stable communications. Our gliders have communicated right through hurricanes, through tropical storms, through some really gnarly weather, and um, you know, and and so we we're able to keep in communication with them. They're rather robust that way. That's uh, impressive technology. Talking to Dr. Catherine Edwards, University of Georgia at Skidaway, and one question that comes to mind. What's the operating range? Is there a certain limit in terms of the area that you can deploy the gliders or is it sort of unlimited? You know, there have been gliders operated by uh, by some of my collaborators at Rutgers that they've piloted across the oceans. Wow. So these uh, the there it, it, it almost feels limitless sometimes what we can do with them. Um, you know, my group and 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 our effort in this has been focusing on the coastal ocean where there is Generally, it's it's it. There's there's fewer observations of ocean profiles, um, and and our in our region in the southeast, we really focus on that edge of the Gulf Stream, uh, between water that's about 20 meters or 60 feet deep, out to the shelf edge where the shelf starts dropping off at about 50 meters or 150 feet deep, and the Gulf Stream uh, provides a large thermal gradient to sample, and it is like just like the jet stream in the atmosphere wiggling and waggling and causing all kinds of smaller scale um, emotions for large, large distances. It is essential. It is the essential ocean feature of the the, the Southeast Atlantic uh, in the U.S. Yeah, it's a it's a very important aspect. Now, as we think about our current situation, we're in the what I call the first hill of the roller coaster of the Atlantic hurricane season, in the sense that we are in August. And if you think about a roller coaster, you're sort of creeping up that hill before you reach the peak and then you plunge down the first hill. I always consider August as sort of the ramp up period, if you will, for the hurricane. See, people have been talking about how quiet it's been in the tropics and it certainly has been. But, you know, a lot of the hurricane activity and the accumulated energy comes after September 1st. So what are your plans for the 2019 season? So we're on that same roller coaster for sure. Yeah. Um, so our uh, the I, I understand from our collaborators at No 
NOAA that they've just per- put their first six gliders in the Caribbean. Uh, they are starting on long-term two to three-month uh, deployments where they're making repeat transects north and south of Caribbean islands. Um, and in the southeast, what we're doing, you know, you can have potentially two ways to go. Our deployments are limited to four to six weeks or so on our rechargeable lithium batteries. And the Gulf Stream, while it's a super interesting feature to um, to explore, um, provides a navigational challenge. Um, the gliders are, are low power and long endurance, but they move at relatively low speeds, about 25 centimeters a second. So you're not going to send one zooming in and out of features or tracking and following hurricanes. So there's a bit of a choice. Do you have background observations? Do you deploy as often to keep the gliders in the water as much as, as much of the time, or do you use your resources trying to put gliders into hurricanes? Um, which of these provides the biggest benefit or the most direct impact for assimilation into ocean models? And so what we've what we've done after, particularly after last year, where we had great successes, you know, per, the North Carolina glider was able to make a huge impact for the ocean models because it was in water where the gradients were large and where the stratification was large. Uh, the, the ocean models without the glider data assimilated showed straight up and down, no stratification and temperature, but the gliders that assimilated data, I mean, the, the gliders, the gliders showed about a 14 degree Celsius difference between surface and bottom. And when you assimilate that into the models, it was able to correct for a lot of the air when when gliders were not taken into account. So with that in mind, we've taken sort of a hybrid approach for our strategy for this hurricane season. We're going to continue our Gulf Stream edge missions as those are really vitally important for getting baseline conditions in our region. And then we'll have three gliders prepped and ready uh, from Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And we are uh, regularly on the phone with weekly meetings or bi-weekly meetings with our national team of hurricane gliders when we're uh, making strategic calls and when and where to deploy our resources. Yeah, one quick question that came to mind, just how I, this is a, a, an audio media, this is a podcast, but I, we're going to get a website in a second where some people can take a look at the gliders, but how large are they roughly? They're about the size of a person. They're okay. about five and a half feet long and about 10 inches in diameter or so. Big yellow robots. And um, uh, they have wings that clip into the side um, and tails on the back. There's only one moving feature externally, and that's the rudder or the fin that moves on the back that controls its horizontal motion. Let's look out 10 years. Uh, 10 years from now, are, are, are we going to have fleets of these gliders uh, in, in the sort of operational observing system? What's your view? That would be amazing. I mean, earlier you talked about weather balloons. You know, every day thousands of weather balloons are released to be able to collect vertical information about uh, temperature and humidity changes in the atmosphere. And those are really vital to getting uh, getting a forecasting system over the United States to be able to have short-term, reasonable short-term and longer-term weather predictions. Um, I think gliders can play that same role in the coastal ocean, uh, coastal and global ocean. So if we had this sort of network of gliders and, and I use and and our regional associate associations of, of ocean observing are, are, are moving towards that model. Um, but I think um, 
hurricanes and other storms are one of these areas in which that connection between the ocean and the atmosphere is really essential. And, um, you know, for example, nor'easters or extratropical cyclones, those have huge weather impacts and huge connections to the ocean. And gliders could be able to provide that same kind of information to improve predictions of those weather systems. Someone the other day asked me if these things could be used to help us with things like El Nino studies, if you deployed them out in the Eastern Pacific or those types of things. I mean, so. You know, we use gliders in all types of ways. And, you know, I'm a glider scientist and an oceanographer. You know, you're always going to get an answer for, yes, we need more of these. <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if, if I had my way, you'd have the ocean crawling with, with gliders and other ways of, of observing. Uh, you know, the other um, the other thing that we can do is is try to optimize how we use them, um, uh, innovate new ways that the gliders can stay out for longer um, or that we can make the communications less expensive or be able to have data transmitted faster because time that these gliders are on the surface transmitting data, they're vulnerable. Um, they don't they can they can be struck by ships. They can be picked up by curious fishermen. Um, they can be attacked by sharks. I had one attacked by a shark. It I was, was wondering about that. I suspected <laughs> that might happen. And you know, so that's when that's when they're vulnerable. Um, and so, if we can find ways to minimize that time on the surface, then that'll allow us to collect more and better data that has more of an impact. Because the impact of particularly this hurricane work, I think, it's been. It's been a really enjoyable project to be able to take on because it does have such direct impact on people's lives. You know, I live in Savannah. I, I'm, I'm a citizen of the coast. And, you know, these hurricane models where we struggle on predicting hurricane intensity, you know, the errors are currently in the 10 to 20 knot range, depending on the length of the forecast. And that 10 to 20 knot range could be a category or more. Absolutely. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that makes a difference to emergency managers about whether or not you're going to order an evacuation, whether it's mandatory or whether you let people shelter in place. Um, so these are these because these data come in real time, have an ability to to propagate through these systems and and potentially um, change the way that that humans like us on the coast, um, uh, conduct our lives. Before we get out of here, where can people find you uh, on the internet or social media, either you personally or more information about your program? Absolutely. So um, Skidaway Institute of Oceanography, uh, our glider program is on Skidaway's uh, website, www.skio.uga.edu. Uh, you can look for our glider information there. Uh, we port all of our data to Sakura, the Southeastern Coastal Ocean Observing Regional Association. You can find our data and a lot more about gliders there on sakura.org. Um, and then this is funded through NOAA and I. You can learn a lot more about integrated observing efforts. Gliders are one part of a larger system of how we get real-time observations of our ocean and how it's changing. 
we have to end it there. This has been a fascinating discussion as I thought it would be. So I'm glad we were able to get you on. Thank you for coming to join us here in studio at the Weather Channel. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard, also from the University of Georgia. And thank you all for continuing to listen to the Weather Geeks podcast. I hope you see that we're bringing you some really fascinating guests and topics. And we're going to continue to do so. So continue to listen and subscribe. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.